This episode is sponsored by TimelyMD, a telehealth provider whose mission is to improve the well-being of college students by making virtual medical and mental health care accessible anytime, anywhere. With immediate medical care, scheduled and on-demand counseling, psychiatry and health coaching services, TimelyMD partners with institutions to empower students to thrive in all aspects of their lives. Learn more at timely.md. Hello, welcome to The Key with IHE. I'm Paul Fain, the host of this podcast and a contributing editor at Inside Higher Ed. The fall term ended before Thanksgiving for many colleges across the country. We spoke with officials at two institutions, Paul Quinn College in Texas and the University of Notre Dame, to hear about this unprecedented term and how it affected the health and wellness of students. Michael Sorrell, Paul Quinn's president, talked about how the Work College sought to stay connected with students in an online fall and to help them cope with anxiety. He also weighed in on what college leaders sometimes really mean when they talk about students' best interests. The best interest of the student is to be honest about the pandemic, right? And to say, we have no idea what we're dealing with, right? We don't even know what this is going to do to you long term. But here's what we do know. We built you all a bunch of really cool stuff that you weren't going to come here if we didn't have. So the debt service is owed on these things. If we don't have you on campus, we can't pay for the shiny climbing walls and the lazy rivers that you guys wanted, right? And we didn't have the self-discipline to tell you no. Christine Gebhardt, the Assistant Vice President for Student Services at Notre Dame, talked about the university's COVID response team and how it expanded the reach of the university's counseling and health offerings. Like Sorrell, Gebhardt said it was all hands on deck at Notre Dame this fall. And so we quickly deployed people outside of the health and wellness unit and the COVID response unit to come in and provide support to the students. Uh, We had people in development and we had people in uh, the library and we had people in general counsel and we had all kinds of people who had skills um, either working with students or logistical support or other things like that that were able for us to really increase our reach to the students and to really solidify and, and adjust our responses. All right, let's get to the conversation. Okay, I'm speaking with President Michael Sorrell of Paul Quinn College. Michael, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for joining me. So we're just on the tail end of Thanksgiving, and I gather that your term is over, but that was the case for you even before this crazy 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, um, gosh, I don't know, it's been maybe 10 years just about that we have ended our first semesters at Thanksgiving. We discovered that there really wasn't any reason to bring people back. And the benefits of sending folks home far outweighed um, anything else. I mean, one, it gave our students a head start on securing jobs over the holidays. Two, it, it didn't remind them of their economic circumstances. I mean, because this is something people don't think about. We always romanticize what it's like to go home for Thanksgiving and then turn around and go home for Christmas. And that's great if you can afford it. But if you're from a family that's, you know, maybe an under-resourced family, a Pell Grant family, that's stressful because you're thinking, I can't afford 
to bring my children home at Thanksgiving. And then two weeks later, three weeks later, bring them back home for Christmas. So you wind up having to make a choice. And more often than not, the choice is they spend Thanksgiving with people who aren't their family members. Now, it's wonderful to have some place to go. It's just not so wonderful if you're going there because you don't have the ability and the resources to go home. So we just said, what if we just cut the semester? What if we started maybe a week early or maybe we don't have a fall break and we just get people home at Thanksgiving and then send them home for two months and then bring them back to school and everyone loves it. The people who love it most are the faculty members, right? And it's allowed me every year to give my staff bonus time, right? So I tell them if everyone is finished with their work early, we'll just close the school. And that's found time for you. It doesn't count against your vacation time. It doesn't, it's just time you get to have with your family, which is good for everyone. Yeah, I would imagine even more valuable right now, given the need yeah. for all of us to try to stay sane. You know, really fascinating. One of those assumptions about higher ed works, you know, you go back after Thanksgiving, that's that's developed for highly selective institutions and relatively wealthy students, just unquestioned assumptions. But it sounds like, you know, I know Paul Quinn is, is questioning lots of assumptions about how higher ed should work. Can you talk a little bit about some of the transformation you're overseeing at this point? Sure. Well, it's important to understand when I came in, it'll be 14 years in March. We were broken and we were trying to find a way to survive. And when you're in that situation, it's really quite liberating, right? Because you're unencumbered by, you know, your history of success because we didn't have that history of success. So we started thinking about, I was like, well, if we were going to create an institution for this era, of higher education, this era of society, what would that look like? And how would we function if there were no sacred cows? And so we just, everything had to stand on its own merits for now. And so that produced, you know, we became an urban work college because it turns out students need, well, first of all, over 75% of college students today are working more than 20 hours per week. So, the idea that people weren't working, that, that's ridiculous. Everyone was working and they were working because they had to work, not because they were trying to build their resumes. So why don't we help people with that? We acknowledge that people are traumatized. They're traumatized by poverty. They're traumatized by the lives that they, they lead. And then frankly, many of them are traumatized by the things they see on the internet. And so we said, well, if everyone's traumatized and how much undiagnosed mental illness is there out there? So why don't we just set a baseline? You come to Paul Quinn as part of your orientation and first semester of college, everyone gets a mental health exam, right? So that we can begin to understand what's ailing you and then treat you, not from a position of ridicule, not from a position of weakness, but from a position of acceptance. We look at all of our majors and our academic partnerships. And, you know, let me say this. One of the things that we believe is that no problem is ever permanently solved, that we don't stand around and pat ourselves on the back for who we think we are. You know, we're constantly evolving because society is evolving and our students are evolving. And that's just a small, small bit of the types of things that we have done here, but we're open to changing everything. All we ask is that it serve our students well. You know, I didn't know that about the, the mental health exam at intake. <clears throat> you know, we all know 
the disproportionate impact of the pandemic uh, and the recession on Black, Latino, lower income folks. I, I'm wondering in this very challenging remote semester, if things that you've learned about your students' mental health have helped you adjust and to serve them better in, in this time. Absolutely. I mean, we, um, in, in a very odd way, we feel as if we were probably better prepared for this pandemic than 99% of the schools in the country. In part, because we already had our moment of truth 13, 14 years ago, when we were you know, a year and a half from having to close our doors. And so we don't fear crises, right? We welcome the opportunities that these crises present us. Now, we don't want anyone to suffer. We don't want anyone to be sick. What we're saying is if we're in this place, how about we make sure that we do the best we can for our institution and our students? And let's be unapologetic about putting our students' need first, and, and loving our students. You know, I said something early on in, this, in the crisis. I said, you know, the schools that are more in love with their students than their traditions are going to be fine. Because if you're more in love with your students, you adapt, right? And you don't adapt in the fake, make, you know, people feel good about themselves kind of way. You adapt in the soul searching, Am I living up to the promise that I made my students and their families way, right? And we have tried to do that. And we make plenty of mistakes. But we make them out loud, right? And then we tell you we made them. And then we tell you we're going to go fix them. And then we tell you how we fix them. And then we move on, right? And we're not married to this idea that we can't make mistakes. And that forgiving nature we can forgive ourselves, so we can certainly forgive our students. And it just, I'll tell you, like, it, it's made such a difference because our students, we are genuinely excited to see them. You know, I've got a staff that is constantly calling the students, checking on them. You know, we hold town hall meetings where students chime in. The students whose phone numbers I have, I call to check on them. Uh, it's rarely a day goes by where I haven't spoken to students, you know, or my young alums, because they're, they're trying to manage this. And I just think that we in higher education have to accept who our students are today. Not who they were yesterday, not who they were 50 years ago, who they are today. And here's something else that people better understand. The majority of students in public education, K through 12, are coming from low-income and under-resourced families. So they're Pell Grant students. So the institutions that are accustomed to caring for Pell Grant students absolutely have a competitive advantage. 85% of my student body are Pell Grant students. So I understand how you love those students. I understand how you make sure they don't feel as if they are outliers, right? I mean, if you've got 8% Pell Grant students, 10% Pell Grant students, Come on, you can send them to school for free, but there's a cost that they are paying every day. Absolutely. It's really interesting, the argument that you made of, of making mistakes and being open with students. And I was, it, it took me to some of the interviews I've done with undergrads about how frustrated they get right now with the kind of toxic positivity. You know, the, and, and the college leaders don't mean badly when they do this. They're 
they're optimistic bunch. They're hopeful. They have to be to do these jobs, but students want want to. It sounds like want to be want to be treated as adults and and, and get it straight and and know that this is going to be hard for for the institution and them. Well, so I, I just want to push back a little bit. Are we sure that people don't mean harm? Right, and, and what I mean by that is, it's a balancing act. And you know, I'm a lawyer by training. And early on in my law school career, I took a course that taught me about the notion of the best interest of someone, right? Like in this case, it was a family law course that talked about best interest of the child. So let's just call it best interest of the student. Best interest of the student, best interest of the institution. Now, the best interest of the student is to be honest about the pandemic, right? And to say, we have no idea what we're dealing with, all right? We don't even know what this is going to do to you long-term. But here's what we do know. We built you all a bunch of really cool stuff that you weren't gonna come here if we didn't have. So the debt service is owed on these things. If we don't have you on campus, we can't pay for the shiny climbing walls and the lazy rivers that you guys wanted. Right. And we didn't have the self-discipline to tell you no. Okay. So we're going to have to bring you back to school because you got to pay for this stuff. And we're going to, we're going to keep you as safe as we can, but a lot of you are going to get sick. Now, come on. We know that was the truth, right? Like we know that was the truth, but the toxic positivity, which by the way, I had not heard that term. I love it. Right. I love it. Um, it's a good one. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. The, the, the toxic positivity was bred from a bottom line motivation. Right. And look, I don't begrudge people who honestly were trying to do right by the students and the institution. I, I question whether they were being honest with themselves. Right. And I mean, if you thought you could make it work, and some places are making it work, right? And I applaud them. I'm impressed. I have so much respect for them. But, you know, I, I question the people who are having large outbreaks and not telling anyone. Because that's happening. And that's why people are mad, right? That's why people are mad. I mean, they know you didn't tell them the truth. And they know you still aren't telling them the truth. Totally. Uh, a lot of that going around. Well, you know, as somebody who is talking to your students often, can you talk a little bit about the anxiety that you're hearing and, and the ways that the college is trying to help students uh, stay on track, and, you know, with realizing that resources aren't endless uh, for your institution and many others? And, and, and I'm particularly interested, if, if, if you can get into it a bit, of, of making them feel a little more confident about what comes after college. Sure. Well, we have a philosophy here where we believe that our next must always be better than our now. All right. I mean, you come to college, the implicit promise of higher education is that this investment will produce an increased outcome, right? An improved outcome. So your now is here. Your next is here. So your next must always be better than your now. So that's the promise. Now, that promise was breaking down for some folks 
prior to COVID, right? When we saw students who said, well, wait a minute, I didn't get a return on my investment and I am struggling to find a job. Now, you know, this isn't gonna be popular, what I have to say, but we never asked the students, how did you do in school, right? I mean, I'm, and again, I'm not asking this from the perspective of saying everybody who has A's has jobs, right? What I'm saying is that you were never told that you were going to have a $100,000 a year job right away. You know, there is, the reality of it is, the better your grade point average, the better your economic prospects immediately after graduation. Now, I would imagine there's some regression going on as you, you know, as you get down the road, but I don't know how much, but I do believe, and I have seen through anecdotal evidence because I've not done a study on it, the better your grades, the better your chances for higher paying jobs. But we had people who were upset about that coming into it. So now you have to really communicate with people. I mean, part of the reason why we have the work college is because we thought it gave our students the best chance of being successful regardless of their academic performance. Because if you have an opportunity, if we can help you get your foot in the door, then it's about your work ethic. It's about how you engage. Because we understand that every rose doesn't bloom on the first day of spring, okay? So we can't depend on the idea that every single student was gonna be ready for an amazing opportunity because of their academic profile. Some folks just need a little help getting in the door. And once they get in the door, you can't get them out, right? They're extraordinary. And some people who show well on paper stink it up, okay? I mean, it's just like, you know, it, it balances out in many respects. So, you know, we started the work program in a way to give people a competitive advantage that comes from, let's call it pole position, all right? We get you there first. You're there while everybody else is in school. You're interning during the year. So you're interning first and second semester. So you have a chance to really take root. Okay, that's important. So now in this era where the economy took a hit and people are really, really scared. And one of the things that we don't know how to solve for, right, just being perfectly honest with you, 90% of our students, well, 85% of our students are on Pell Grants. So they go home and their lives are a lot more challenging than they would be at school. That wears on them because what we've done is we've lifted them out of the trauma of poverty. And we've given them a place that is safe and stable and going to be fine. In the midst of that, in the midst of teaching you how to exhale, we plop you right back into from whence you came because we, we can't do anything about that, right? I mean, it's, it's a global pandemic. And now, now we're stressed out. Now the students are, you know, our surveys show 90% of our students are working 40 hours a week or trying to work 40 hours a week. 51% of the students are primary caregivers for kids, right? Not necessarily their kids, but someone in their, in their familial units, children. So 
you're working 40 hours a week, you're going to school full time. And for us, they've been doing it since March, in effect, right? Because we, could, we sent them home in March, we start school in, you know, we sort of start the beginning of the school year in the summer, all right? So we had a full-fledged summer school. And now we're into this. So you are two and a half semesters into this hard life. And they're discouraged. And, you know, we're still being honest. We're like, look, it's going to be really hard to bring you back in the spring. We don't have a vaccine. I mean, I told the students at the beginning, can I bring you back if we don't have testing, like reliable testing and a vaccine because you're going to get sick. And now we're trying to modify. We're going to do a beta test with a bubble around some of our athletes because we can keep them here. But our regular students, we can't. And so we're in Texas, which is, you know, I mean, the lack of leadership on this issue here has been astounding, right? I mean, yeah. so we're dealing with these things that it's a hot spot you are in jeopardy and the things that you like to do as a student place you in even greater and it's scary and the students are scared they're tired they're anxious they're fragile um, our counselors are working overtime to try and help the students find peace but it's hard it's really hard Yes, uh, big challenges for your students and for your institution, I know. Um, we'll leave it here. Thanks so much for talking with me and uh, you know, getting to the end of this challenging year uh, and 14 years of, of a journey. Um, the model is one that I know a lot of folks around the country are really curious about for good reason. So I appreciate you talking about it. No, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for caring about the well-being of the students. Not enough people are asking these questions. Yeah, I hear you. It's, it feels like it's starting to get more attention now, though, and, and the mental health piece in, in particular. So let's keep in touch. And uh, hey, I hope you get some time off as well as your, uh, your colleagues. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking to go even more in-depth in IHE's news coverage, check out our special reports. These deep dives feature rich data and reporting, as well as thoughtful, substantive analysis you can trust. Visit InsideHigherEd.com backslash special dash reports to view the topics we've covered and to purchase the report that best supports your area of work or study. So I am uh, speaking with Dr. Christine Gebhardt. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So here we are, uh, the end of a, a very unusual semester. Can you talk a little bit, I know this is a, a big question, uh, you know, of, of the work that you did this fall with students on their, on the mental and, and other health issues, what, what were some of the most common ones you saw and how did the university respond? Yeah. So uh, thanks, Paul. It was a very challenging semester. It was one that offered a lot of opportunity to learn uh, with, and, uh, with our students. Um, we started out the uh, semester by standing up what I would call the COVID-19 response unit. This was a health and wellness unit made up of an interdisciplinary team um, in which I, I and other leaders within the campus were on the steering committee. It was uh, had multiple components. First, basic education. How do we teach students about health and wellness during a COVID-19 semester? 
The second was uh, testing, which is an incredibly important part of the toolkit of keeping students safe and healthy. The third part was quarantine and isolation uh, support, providing students not only with particular housings, but meals, care, uh, daily health check-ins, mental health support, and then a release team that helps students um, know how to care for themselves after they were released. And then um, most importantly, really trying to expand our services beyond uh, University Health Services and the University Counseling Center. Uh, really trying to use expanded hours, uh, virtual resources, telehealth resources, as well as different strategies of addressing the students' ongoing needs throughout the semester. So that's obviously a lot in Notre Dame, relatively well-resourced, but I'm guessing still a challenge for your staff to, to do all of that. How did you cope with that? I mean, how, yeah. were you able to, to tap outside folks or, or you know, and, and when did you come up with the plan? I mean, how, how fast were you able to pull all that together? Yeah, well, so we planned all summer long um, as to how we were going to work with the students and care for them. Best laid plans, though, within two weeks, we had a major uptick in our cases. In fact, you know, really had to rethink because we didn't anticipate the volume so quickly. We knew that there were going to be multiple outbreaks, but we didn't anticipate when those outbreaks were going to happen as early as they did. So it was within the first, you know, two weeks of school. And we are very fortunate in Notre Dame, not only in access to resources, but people. And so we quickly deployed people outside of the health and wellness unit and the COVID response unit to come in and provide support to the students. Uh, we had people in development and we had people in uh, the library and we had people in general counsel and we had all kinds of people who had skills, um, either working with students or logistical support or other things like that, that were able for us to really increase our reach to the students and to really solidify and, and adjust our responses. And as a result of that really great influx of people, we're able to re-envision things, we're able to respond more quickly so that when we got our other upticks throughout the semester, uh, particularly around the middle of the semester when our students were tired, and they weren't sleeping as much as they would, and, and they got COVID fatigue, and so their safety measures weren't as strong. And then towards finals and cold season, and as students were moving indoors, and so the things that we utilized to kind of help mitigate safety had to be rethought. And so a lot of great people uh, participated well beyond what we assumed was going to be a health and wellness initiative and actually became a Notre Dame all-campus initiative. You know, uh, higher ed, always an adventure. You, you work in the general counsel's <laughs> office, and now you're working on student health and wellness. So, you know, I, I was part of the early coverage of Notre Dame spike, and you, you all were definitely in, in the maelstrom, I, I, uh, we all could tell. Uh, you know, did that change things for you, just the, the attention that you all got? You know, I'm assuming families and students were aware of that, and you know, I could imagine that made for an even more uh, stressful period for you. You know, families, you know, at first everybody was scared, right? Because things were happening quickly, but people really rallied. The students were amazing. When we told them we're, we're taking, 
a hiatus for classes for two weeks. They didn't necessarily want to, but they knew it was important and they were incredible. They doubled down. They really helped each other. The faculty uh, were incredible in shifting from, we started out with 85% of our classes in person. And that was something that we were able to continue after the hiatus, but we all went virtual and faculty rallied, staff rallied, OIT rallied, uh, the students rallied. And for two weeks, we hunkered down. We changed our our engagements, we changed our programming, we changed how students were fed, we, we changed our cleaning protocols. And so we were able to quickly come out of it. And from the lessons learned, we were able to change how we program. So for example, uh, we created what we call the library lawn and the north quad, excuse me, south quad lawn. We did more adventures outside. We made sure our students had opportunities to connect in different venues that were, were not normally how we would program or how we would engage with them. Uh, we utilized outdoor athletic spaces to provide movies and to provide encounters where they could let off steam. We opened up areas for studying that were never used for studying. Uh, we had outdoor fire pits. Um, so we really had to work with risk management to say like, how, how do you do this? And how do we do it in a way that ultimately is safe for the students, um, but also gave them opportunities that we never thought about doing before. We also, you know, really took advantage of people who really were in, concerned about our students and utilize them to make those phone calls, to do those check-ins. Because what we learned is when we went virtual or with students in classes and using social distancing, our normal nets of people like having eyes on students weren't as frequent. And so what was happening is our nets to catch students early on in distress were not in place the same way. And so we had to rethink how is it that we're going to catch students early on when they're distressed so that they don't evolve into crisis. And then if they do evolve into crisis, how do we catch them very quickly? Quarantine and isolation proved to be a really interesting balance between keeping students safe, but also attending to their mental health. Because I say often, we asked a lot of our students this semester. Um, we asked them to be virtual. We asked them to socially distance. We asked them to be masked. We asked them to start out where only roommates could be in a room to then sections and then hall. And then, you know, our hope was for inner hall interaction, which we never got to, but our hope for the spring is that we will. And our students adapted beautifully. You know, there were behavioral challenges, but we asked the most of we asked of students was when they had to go into quarantine and isolation because they're naturally social creatures. College is an experience where you connect with people. And when we saw that students were going into quarantine and isolation, that created an elevated sense of, sense of anxiety and increased worry about ability to, to remain engaged with classes as well as how to, you know, you're alone in a room for a number of days. How do you begin to connect that is safe, but also real and, and authentic? And that was really, that took students time to figure that out. And for us to figure out how do they not just engage with people who are health experts, but actually pastoral as well as social and can, encouraging them to still remain connected with their residence halls through um, Zoom or virtual programs. You know, as a, as a layperson from afar, you know, remembering the beginning of the semester, I, I certainly felt 
skeptical that you, <laughs> you all and everyone could pull it off to the degree that you have. I mean, did you exceed your expectations on all of this when you would look back at the end of the semester? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I do think we ex exceeded our expectations in many ways. I mean, and I think what we, the, where we exceeded our expectations is when we fell short or when we were challenged. You know, as tired as everybody was, nobody wanted to give up because everybody believed in the, what we were doing was important. That knowing that from our spring where our students were like, yeah, it was, it was learning, but it wasn't the learning I wanted. And faculty saying like, yes, I can do online, but I know that my students aren't grasping. And so there, there was always this balance of, are we crazy? Should we go online? Versus we know that there's a value of in-person education and how can you do it well? And how can you do it safely? And how can you do it that it's even effective? And those are three very different things. And really trying to balance all of those was a great feat. Again, we learned a lot. And for example, we didn't have breaks. We, in order to get the students in early and to get them out before Thanksgiving, we, we took away fall break. Well, now we know that for our students' mental health, we can't do that. So in spring semester, we have built in restoration days. We uh, did a restoration week during fall break, uh, an opportunity for students to you know, think about like, okay, how am I gonna recruit for what normally would be my fall break to get through the second semester? And the students were great and they were like, yeah, this is really wonderful, but you gotta give us time to do the restoration. So we, you know, thinking about how do we do restoration from the very beginning? Like, how do we go in the semester with restoration in mind? And that's a, something that faculty, staff, and students have to collaborate on. I think the other thing we learned is to really assess the needs ongoing. So our McDonald Center for Student Wellbeing did surveys over the summer and twice during the semester to figure out what's going on with the students. Where are they? What do they need? What are their concerns? And then we met frequently or regularly with the students to say, and faculty and staff, to say like, okay, how could we change our quarantine and isolation? How could we change our academic requirements? How can we change finals so that our students are, you know, you can't say less stress because COVID created stress, but to really mitigate that level, that extra level that we knew our students were undergoing. You know, it's really interesting and it totally makes sense to me that among all this, taking a break might get lost. And, you know, we think about the increasing body of research showing, you know, students' anxiety and uncertainty is, is paramount. You know, obviously their, their health is as well. But, you know, when you look at, you've mentioned a little bit about this, the spring and how different it might be. What are, what, what are some of the university's plans to keep tabs on students, keep, keep in touch in terms of mental health and academic counseling that might be different than the fall? Yeah, well, I think it's a it's a whole picture, right? So one thing that we talked about is we're going to be do more robust testing, right? So we can keep ahead of those upticks that that we can actually by staying on top of it and increasing our surveillance testing, we're going to adapt to the cold weather because that's a huge concern. Like we were lucky here in Indiana, we had no snow. 
um, before our students actually left us. Well, <laughs> the, there's no way in February you're going to miss Indiana snow. So we're going to adapt our cold weather programming and, like I said, giving them mini breaks and, and providing targeted programming, again, in a more proactive as well as responsive, like looking at the rhythm differently, knowing how the rhythm is going to shift. The work itself doesn't change. The care of students doesn't change. It's the how that's changing and who's doing it. And like I said, it's more of a cross-campus. Faculty are engaging in thinking about restoration and health and wellness and promoting that, which is really amazing because we know students really respond to when their faculty both talk about it, but also model it. So we've really been intentional about not just looking at the health and wellness of the students, but also the faculty and staff, because it's faculty and staff that undergird the learning and are there for their students. So I think one thing that we've learned really, really well, and we're going to pay more attention to is how do we provide those uh, resources for our faculty and staff as well. Utilizing the fact that Gen Z really like technology and are really comfortable with online formats. So utilizing programs such as Calm or Headspace or mindfulness programs so that students can engage with that whenever they want. Engaging telehealth platforms, not just for physical health, but also for mental health. So we not only have our counseling center and our health center online with telehealth, but we also have a third party vendor, TimelyMD, that we constructed or created a platform called Fighting Irish Care. Again, has a health and wellness coaching component, has counseling, has talk now, has also, you know, if a student is at three o'clock in the night, is anxious, has somebody that they can access and talk to 24 seven. You know, we are restructuring how we do move-in so that they start in safe and how we move out so that they leave us safely. You know, we did a massive exit testing um, as well as entrance testing. And we feel really good about that. We knew our students came in and we had a good sense of, of you know, what their health and wellness was. And they left us with a good sense of, you know, okay, yes, you can always pick it up traveling, but we knew that they left our campus um, knowing that they were negative or if they had tested positive, that they were gonna remain here until they were safe to return home. That has a huge impact on our students because I can't tell you how many people were anxious while they were doing their exams, also feeling like, am I going to be safe to go home? Am I, am I going to keep my family safe? And, and our students were really concerned about that. And by providing a very robust testing protocol, we were able to provide that assurance that yes, if you go home, you will be safe and your family will be safe and that you can enjoy that these 10 weeks with them. And then when you come back to us, we'll have another robust testing entrance and a, a scaled move in so that again, when we all come back, that you can know when you engage with your friends that you and your friends are gonna be safe. Well, Christine, thank you so much for taking time to walk us through this very unusual fall. And uh, speaking of restoration, I hope you get a little time off to recover uh, over the holidays as well. Great, thank you so much. This episode is sponsored by TimelyMD, a telehealth provider whose mission is to improve the well-being of college students by making virtual medical and mental health care accessible anytime, anywhere. With immediate medical care, scheduled and on-demand counseling, psychiatry and health coaching services, 
TimelyMD partners with institutions to empower students to thrive in all aspects of their lives. Learn more at timely.md. That's it for this episode. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next week, going to be talking about online education and partnerships with Andrew Clark, the CEO of Zovio. Hope you'll join me.